Everything is in the cloud in our firm. I have no physical office. Our first meeting is going to be at 10 o'clock. I'm going to keep everybody out of traffic. We live in Atlanta. Traffic is terrible. We don't want to do meetings after 3.30 if we can help it. And I'm going to have people be able to spend more time with their families and have a really good quality of life. And my philosophy has been to uh, do it a little bit differently than a lot of people in the financial services industry. And that has really served me well. And it's made my employees fiercely loyal. I've had zero turnover since I started the firm seven years ago. Welcome to Better Conversations, Better Outcomes, presented by BMO Global Asset Management. I'm Ben Jones. And I'm Emily Larson. On this show, we explore the world of wealth advising from every angle, providing actionable ideas designed to improve outcomes for advisors and their clients. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Global Asset Management, its affiliates or subsidiaries. On today's episode, we'll hear from a panel of advisors who managed to double their business in a relatively short time. Their secrets, as you'll hear, include team building, grit, creativity, and referrals. We'll also talk about the challenges of growing so rapidly and how to deal with expenses and the stress put on you and your employees. We recorded this panel in front of a live audience at the Excel 401k conference in October 2019, so you'll hear some background noise from our live recording. Let me introduce you to our featured panel. First, you'll hear from David Griffin, founder of Atlanta Retirement Partners. Next, Jania Stout, practice leader of Fiduciary Plan Advisors at Hightower, who told me that the secret to her accelerated growth was focused grit. And you'll hear exactly why in a moment. Finally, we have Robert Scherzer, Managing Director of Pension Marks Metro New York City office. So when I started out, it was just me doing everything from participant work to plan sponsor work to the investments. I was affiliated with LPL, but I was doing all of it. My philosophy as I grew, once I had the revenue to afford my first person, I had, of course, favorites that worked at the record keepers. So I hired a young lady from One America who I had worked with for years to become my relationship manager. And then I would just continue to build on that. And as I attained more success and was adding a lot of plans to the practice, I went and hired another person from principal who was just one of the top service people at principal. And that second hire was really critically important because not only could it allow me to move up market a little bit and be able to to service those clients exceptionally well, but I knew that she had loyal customers that would probably follow her, not right out of the gate, but over six months, 12 months and a year. And, you know, looking back, she paid for herself within two years of being on board. So it's all about the people that you put in your practice. And if you can hire the right people that can help you generate business, give you a better local reputation, and really deliver excellent service, the growth will come naturally. Wonderful. And um, just one follow-up to that. I know that referrals came out of a lot of those hires. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how referrals have kind of been part of that growth story, and maybe you could share an example. for Sure. I started my career at Great West, so I was trained in employee benefits and retirement plans, so I had some experience in the benefit side of things. And I knew through the years, lots of different firms and individuals in the Atlanta marketplace that were successful employee benefit advisors. So in working with them, I already had a little bit of rapport, but in establishing relationships on a referral basis with those folks, employee benefits was really the key referral drivers for me. We were lucky to win an RFP for one of the local benefits firms that's a well-known one. And after that, they could actually kind of see the work that I did, the, the work that my team did. 
And then I could continue to develop relationships with all the producers on the benefit side and the property and casualty side. So developing the referrals and the entertaining side of this business, I've always enjoyed that. I like the people side of the business. I like building relationships with people and building those referral sources has really served me well through time. A couple years past that, we were able to bring on board one of the largest law firms in Atlanta that has a large practice in benefits law. And that became an excellent reference for us and also a wonderful referral source. So, you know, we all have those clients that are really good for us to cultivate, to use as references, and also to be able to refer to us business. So I think, you know, being specific and going after some of those type opportunities will behoove all of you. Wonderful. Jania, can you share a little bit about your firm? You've grown $3 billion in three years, almost a billion dollars a year, which is pretty amazing. And so maybe you could share a little bit about how you and your team went about doing that. Sure. So my start for that $3 billion came about a little differently. I've been in the retirement business for 20-some years, but a few of us decided to start our own practice. We actually went through a pretty intense lawsuit, and we were able to build it even in the middle of a lawsuit. And everything was settled. We didn't do anything wrong. It was just we had a non-compete, so we had to start over. And, you know, we kind of took a deep breath, and the very first day, it was August 15th, five years ago, I was sitting in a room all by myself, because the way our non-competes worked, a couple of us couldn't leave at the same time. So I had to start making cold calls and get new business. But the benefit was, and I think the reason I was able to grow as fast as we did, is it's not like I was brand new in the industry. I wasn't starting fresh. I really had learned a lot. And a lot of the things that I shouldn't do, I could start fresh with a clean slate. So really just reaching out to partners and old clients that weren't part of my old firm or that had moved to other companies. And I would say I'm a complete LinkedIn junkie. I have you know, LinkedIn on one screen at all times. I'm on it constantly. And I just went and focused on everybody I knew who was a decision maker somewhere and really just shared with them my story about starting over. And it's amazing how people will cheer for you when you do good things. And I always say good things happen to good people. And we were able to grow pretty quickly. So I do want to ask, is LinkedIn the primary business platform that you use? Absolutely. And then we've had Sherry Fitz on talking about you know content, whether you connect using social media, you create or you curate content. How do those three buckets kind of line up for you? Are you spending more time creating or are you connecting and curating as well? Well, I'm connecting pretty much every hour. Anyone I meet, the first thing I do, sometimes even before leaving the parking lot, I'm on my phone linking in with them. Also, if there's a potential prospect, I link in with them before I meet them. And in the message, I just say, I'm sharing with you my profile so you can get to know me a little bit better before we meet. And I want them to be linked in with me because I want them to see the shares that I'm doing so that they know I'm super focused in this business. But to answer your other question, how much do I create? Probably not as much as I want to, but I do try to at least a couple times a year create a blog or whatever it's called, the white paper type thing. Some people might disagree with me, but I try not to post too much 
and again, most people say, oh my gosh, you post all the time, but I really don't post that much. It's just nobody else does, so it makes me look like I'm doing a lot more than I am. But I don't want people to get sick of me either. So like my prospects and my clients, you know, if they think that I'm on LinkedIn all the time, they're going to think, well, why isn't she working on my account or managing the business? So there is a kind of a magic to how often you do it. If I start to get on my own nerves, I know that I need to stop posting. So I thought you were Wonderful. a professional dancer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, soul singing. Yeah. Now, Bob, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the trajectory of your practice because you've had a, also a little bit of a, a different path. I spent 26 years with principal literally right out of college, and then I uh, went to the advisor side about five and a half years ago. And so we, we've got now about 60 plans, a million five in revenue, and about two billion of AUM. And our revenue is completely and totally diversified. So we have small plans, medium plans, and large plans. That has come completely by accident. And actually, when I thought about it, I guess it was an accident. Really what our focus is, and this isn't news to anybody, is we go after low-hanging fruit. So I would much rather work on a smaller plan with a 70% chance of getting than a, a larger plan with a minimal chance. By doing that, by focusing on the stuff that we can actually sell, and again, I'm sorry, some basic, I find that that's, that's the quickest way that we grow our practice. You can go way back to episode 14 to hear Sherry Fitz talk about her approach to LinkedIn. Jania does things a bit differently, but either way, it can be an invaluable tool for connecting with potential clients and providing meaningful engagement. Of course, you can also opt to build relationships in person, and Ben asked Bob and David about the networking organizations they're a part of. If you're not in a networking group, I'd really highly encourage that you get in one. And they're all around, and every city has one, but make sure you're in the right one. I was anti-networking group because I just thought everybody would stand around, pass their own business cards. We just do business amongst ourselves. In our networking group, that's prohibited. So it's, again, if, if somebody wants you to do their business, they'll, they'll come to you, but you can't ask for it. it. Takes the stress right down. We meet every other week, you know, so 8 a.m., you know, getting into Midtown Manhattan. We're meeting, we're doing house calls. That's where we're gonna get to know each other. So whether it's in our networking group or networking with an ERISA attorney, or networking with plan auditors or whatever it may be, people buy from people that they know and they like, or they'll refer you to people that they know and they like. So that's how we really run the business. Now, one of the things that you shared with me when we were preparing for this was about the currency of thank yous in that networking group. Can you share a little bit about your approach and maybe an example? Yeah, I mean, every networking meeting we do business in progress. So that's where you stand up and call the power of the room. So it's called the Metropolitan Executive Alliance. And that's where you're helping people. You know, you'll ask for help or what have you. And again, the currency is thank yous. In this room, by the way, I would probably say 80 or 90% of the people have nothing to do even tangentially to what we do. So it could be somebody that's a mover or what have you. But what I would tell you, one area to grow the business that's incredibly effective, and there's very few people that are doing it, is what I define as project work. So somebody will come to you and say, Look, we all want the same thing. We want clients with reoccurring revenue. I want it too. But oftentimes, they may have an advisor they like, or many times they don't feel they have the need for an advisor. They may be working with a record keeper that historically doesn't really work with advisors. So explaining to them the fact that they need to do a record keeping RFP, an actuarial RFP, a plant auditor RFP, we'll even do an investment advisor RFP, 
right, which will conflict ourselves out, but oftentimes we find there's about a 60% time that after you do a project that they'll actually hire you to do either additional projects or on an ongoing basis. David, you've been active with SHRM, and so maybe you can share a little bit about how you work with that organization. I always had mixed feelings about different associations and trade groups and that kind of thing. And SHRM has a large presence in the Atlanta marketplace where I work. So we decided to make a commitment to participate in the meetings over at least a year or two. Because I think if you're going to participate in those type of HR organizations, you need to kind of think of it long term. And, you know, I was amazed the first time we participated and had a booth and I had myself and two other folks on my team there. We had a CEO of a tech company just walk up to our booth and he said, you know, I've never been to one of these, but I wanted to see what my HR people are up to. And so we engaged in a conversation with the CEO. He became a client two weeks thereafter. And I said, you know, you never know when you're going to bump into that type of opportunity. And subsequently, we also picked up a client that's a local payroll company in Atlanta that had a booth that was two booths down from us. And so the two first pieces of business didn't even come from an HR person. It came from a CEO who was just there to see the meeting. And it came from another presenter who was there because they're local. And now they're a great referral source because they provide payroll solutions. So I think it's, it's always beneficial to be out there networking and meeting new people. And through sponsoring organizations like that and, and contributing to them, I think you will see some return on investment there. But personally, when I go, and I don't like sitting behind the, the table all day long, I, I walk around and I see the people that are the CPAs and I see the people of the payroll companies, you know, people that I have relationships with that I need to see because they bump into opportunities and when they do, they come my way. The drive for continued growth can be exhausting. And this is especially true if you're building your business from the ground up. The challenges of rapid growth are numerous and can be hard to know where to start. So let's take one step at a time. Our panel shared some of their approaches to dealing with high stress, limited resources, and hiring in a competitive job market. Now, I do want to spend some time on the challenges of growth. So growth's a, a neat buzzword. We all hear about scaling and growth and exponential growth, but growth has a lot of challenges that come with it. And so, Jania, maybe we could start with you. You are president of Napa currently. You're running a practice that's been growing quite rapidly. You're staffing up. How do you deal with stress? And stress has got to be one of the challenges that you and your organization deal with. How do you deal with it? Maybe you could give an example of a time that, you know, it affected your practice or your people or your, or your family and how you, how you kind of now work through that. I do get stressed. I actually had a massage yesterday. It was awesome. But they put this bomb on me that like made me kind of feel very lethargic so I don't know if that's actually good I'm glad I did it yesterday or legal yeah it was I think it was legal um but uh yeah you know some of my personal challenges are I don't say no I kind of do more than I should and it does start to affect the business I can tell when I didn't prep enough for a sales presentation or for an important client meeting because I'm overloaded and tired. We just hired our 14th employee and one of the other big challenges is we don't have a formal training module like department. So I think that wears heavy on me is how do I get the other folks uh, up to speed. But at least I'm wise enough now, I'm mature enough that when I see that I'm forgetting to prep as well as I used to, I'm starting to just say no a little bit more. 
And somebody asked me recently to be on this advisory board to create something in this industry, and I declined. And they were actually surprised that I declined because it was a really neat concept. But I was really proud of myself because I usually say yes, but I said no, and I feel good about it. And Bob, when you're starting out, you know, you, you go and launch your practice, resources start to become, you know, constrained. You're trying to wear three or four different hats. Tell me, a couple of years ago, I think you partnered with an organization to pull in other resources. Tell me a little bit about your decision to be part of another group and leverage their home office. Yeah, I mean, I declared independence and, you know, went to the dark side and I built everything myself, right? I mean, I partnered with a gentleman and we set up our own RIA, we handled our own compliance, we joined a firm that gave us all the investment reports, etc. And I found out, you know, a couple things. I found out I was pretty good at selling and servicing retirement plans and I was pretty awful at literally everything else, like setting out a bill, you know, or, or remembering to pay, give it, what have you. So, you know, shameless plug, I mean, I did partner with Mark, and it's, it's been, for me, it's been a great decision, right? Because the choice is to hire a whole bunch more people locally or to kind of give them a piece of my fees and then that'll free me up. They're handling the compliance, they're running the investment reports. When I was at, at principal, I had two internal wholesalers working for me. Now I kind of have that. So for me, that quote unquote aggregator model or whatever it's called works well because it's still my practice. I still do what I want to do but I'm able to dump some of the work like billing or whatever on somebody else. So it's been pretty effective. And David, for a lot of people that are growing, this idea of staffing up becomes a big challenge, especially in a low unemployment environment like we're in today. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how you've managed to staff up and keep and attract new associates. My model is a little bit unique in that we have seven individuals. Everything is in the cloud in our firm. I have no physical office. So that creates a new set of challenges. It creates a higher margin for your business. My philosophy was our first meeting, it's gonna be at 10 o'clock. I'm gonna keep everybody out of traffic. We live in Atlanta, traffic is terrible. We don't wanna do meetings after 3.30 if we can help it. And I'm gonna have people be able to spend more time with their families and have a really good quality of life. And I was able to do that and even hire people at reduced salaries to give them that type of flexibility. I'm on vacation six weeks a year. There's unlimited vacation for my people, and I've never seen it abused. And I'm a big believer in Colby. I use Colby to test people's brains before I hire them, and I kind of see how they fit with my brain and how they fit with the others. Because when you're managing people and everyone's remote, it's very hard to bring somebody in that's new, that's fresh, that you have to train. Subsequently, I have to hire experienced people that are more expensive, but they can also handle a lot more business. So. My philosophy has been to uh, do it a little bit differently than a lot of people in the financial services industry, and that has really served me well, and it's made my employees fiercely loyal. I've had zero turnover since I started the firm seven years ago. Being creative with hiring, insourcing, outsourcing, and knowing when to say no are critical when pursuing exponential growth. On the topic of challenges, Ben asked our advisors about their philosophy on managing expenses during rapid growth. You'll notice that David's answer returns to the idea that Jania just mentioned, which is that sometimes you just need to say no. It may sound counterintuitive to turn down clients when you're trying to double your business, but taking on clients that are a poor fit for your business model or company personality can be just as important as saying yes. Well, 
I would tell you the last two hires we made were millennials. I know they don't like being called that, but actually the last one we hired, she's literally just graduated college. And the one before her, he's about 23, 24, and they've been fabulous. We, we used to be a lot like David in the sense that we had a lot of senior level people and they're expensive. And I thought we can't continue to grow at this same pace with that kind of expense. So I started to hire younger people and train them, which is challenging, but it works. So that's how we've been able to manage expenses. And we certainly, I would say, myself and my partner, we don't pay ourselves. Our payday is going to be down the road. Because if you look at our book of business, we have a lot of employees. So I would forego myself. I kind of laugh because every step I've made in my career, I've made less and less money. So I literally make less money today than I did seven or eight years ago. But I think that in the end, it'll pay off. And I'd rather take care of our clients and build a really nice team. You know, I've heard the general rule of thumb that as you grow, you know, 300000 in revenue, that's when you make your next hire. And I guess that's a good rule of thumb. But I think it's also about managing the book of customers that you have. And, you know, to Jania's point, I'm the same way. I'm really bad at saying no to anything, you know. And when you develop referral sources, inevitably, startups are coming your way. (laughs) You know, it's just the name of the game. So you have to set boundaries with those cases. Hey, if we're going to do this, it's a 4,000 minimum fee. It's auto enrollment. It's safe harbor. It's auto escalation. If you don't hit those four bogeys, I'm sorry, but we can't do it. And I can make a business argument for that. But I also think that all of us in this room know that your customers that aren't profitable or the ones that you don't like dealing with. And I learned an interesting lesson at the end of last year. We brought on a $150 million plan. It was three 401ks, two DBs. It was a parent company of a small company that we represented in Georgia, and they were in Chicago. And right after we got the deal inked, I had a call from, from one of my key people, and she said, Dave, dealing with this CFO is absolutely the most stressful thing I've ever been through in my career. She said, I'm not sleeping. She said, my husband is thinking I'm crazy. And I said, fire him. And we, we fired him. And man, when you bring on 150 million and two weeks later, you're telling them they're fired. Oh, it's like, God, what are we doing? But it was the best thing I could have done at the end of last year. And that woman's husband said, the next time I see Dave Griffin, I'm going to kiss him because he <laughs> saw the change in her. And that meant so much to her because, you know, sometimes you're going to run into customers that are difficult, that are going to become huge time drains, and they're going to create uh, an impact on the efficiency of your business that can be long lasting. So, you know, you got to know when to kind of cut bait on some opportunities and even some customers. And we've been the benefactors of having transient HR people, as I call them. Those are the best people in the world, people that are really good, but they move jobs every three or four years and take you with them. And then you keep the plan and they go somewhere else and you keep that plan and they go somewhere else. So those are the best. So, you know, you try to take care of those people and, and, and you know, try to, try to be mindful of the book and look at your book of business every year. I think the advisors that are really good in this business, they look at their two or three or four customers every year and fire them every year. I haven't gotten to that point now, but I did fire a big one. And I was like, well, it's a step in the right direction. So, you know, be aware of that. One of my good friends who was in the back of the room here earlier taught me the language, seek excellence elsewhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you don't have to fire them. You can just ask them to seek excellence elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) The damnable misery of this at the end of the day is about a month ago, I heard that that CFO is gone. I was like, oh, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. <laughs> but it goes around, comes around. The problem I would tell you is if you haven't done it, go hire an intern. I mean, you know, for those of you that have college kids or, you know, whatever, it's like you're handing out a gold nugget. Originally, you do it because you're doing a favor, right? Because every, everybody knows somebody that needs that internship. But I got to tell you, you know, if you want somebody to understand Salesforce or really understand Excel, go bring in a college kid so you feel good. And we're not having them file. I mean, if you think about it, what you can offer these interns is they're sitting in rooms, you know, prospect meetings or, you know, a finalist meeting with a record keeper. They're, they're interacting with CFOs. So our next hire will be employee number three and a half, right? You know, we're trying to do it with less, but again, we're leveraging resources that we have in the back office. But I, I would say a hire an intern and that's going to be our next employee. Worst case scenario, you just did something nice. But I find every time I've done it, I've gotten as much out of it as that I've given them. After our panel shared some tips and stories about hiring, I remembered that Bob had taken a step to further his growth trajectory by making an acquisition of another practice. I asked him to share his experience with the audience. If you're looking for another avenue to grow your practice aggressively, identifying tuck-in acquisitions can be a really good strategy. When I was building this thing, I didn't say I was going to go acquire. And I stumbled into a situation where somebody was struggling and was doing health and retirement. So the reason I bought it was a $300,000 book. I knew the book. I mean, I knew it was really sticky. One of the key things about the acquisition was I got his service rep to come along with it. So not only was the existing book going to be well-serviced, this person would have capacity to service other plans. I looked at the book and I knew I could grow that book from about 300000 to 400000 by just doing some smart things, renegotiating with the record keeper, adding some additional services. And last but not least was I got it for a good price and I was able to afford it, right? So, you know, when you're starting out, you know, money is always tight when you're building a new practice. And now, you know, that book is no different than any other piece of business that we have. So I would definitely say to look at this opportunistically, you know, because they're out there. I mean, we're all hearing the story about advisors getting a little bit older and some not really having a succession plan out there. And really what you could do is just kind of do, the person I acquired it from worked with me for about two years, three years, and then gradually kind of went on to other things, even though they're still somewhat involved with business. And to expand on that a little bit, um, that's one of the things I ask wholesalers for. Identify advisors that you think are just tinkering in this business or you think might want to exit a guy that's got five plans, 10 plans, let me talk to him. Let me see if I can buy his plans. You'll bump into two kinds of people. Sometimes they're very successful wealth management people and the 401ks are kind of a headache. I've gotten business from that for free where I didn't even have to pay for it. They just wanted the customer to be taken care of. And I was like, that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is they will engage a conversation to sell it to you. And then you can just give them whatever terms that you think they might bite. And we tried a couple of times. We've been successful a couple of times with it by two, three, four, five plans. But I think that's a great way to grow your business quickly. You just have to be able to identify those people. One last thing on the Pulsera topic, and maybe, you know, since I did it for 26 years, you're kind of near and dear to my heart. But if you think about it, it's a tougher gig now than it ever has been, right? Because everybody with the DCIOs and the platform people. So what we did was we didn't want to say no. So we have a day a month, like for half a day, four set standing appointments where they can just call and, and book into those appointments. So we're going to be there anyway. 
And then, you know, we all have our kind of friends and family group, right? People that you've got a great relationship, you have a lot of business with. And I can tell you that we've gotten a lot of referrals from wholesalers and we've never asked for one. You know, so I would just say that they're a really good resource uh, to you and it's definitely a way that you can help grow. But by scheduling that time, because you all know that we can be busy every second of every day, meeting with people that aren't really growing the business is something good and set. You know, we do it every, every month. So. And did those wholesalers, they know that you have a standing appointment, so they just call the office? And Yeah, and again, let's face it, you're going to get called all the time from people you don't even know or some, some mutual fund company or whatever. So then I just basically, I, I got one this morning. Hey, you know, let me meet. please talk to my assistant, Jesse. She'll schedule a time that, that's convenient for you, et cetera. Obviously, if you have a prospect or something going on, you can, you can talk to them, whatever. So it's a good way, and then if they know that once or twice a year, they can get in and see us. We want to thank Bob, Jania, and David for sharing their wisdom and some of the secrets to their success. Again and again, our panel returned to a central idea that allowed them to double their business in a short period of time, which is the value of connecting with adjacent businesses and potential clients cannot be understated. Whether it be through a networking group, an HR organization, LinkedIn, or wherever else, taking advantage of opportunities to build relationships has always been a cornerstone of success in the advisory businesses. Ben closed up the panel by asking for a final word from our guests on this theme. Well, if you're not on LinkedIn, make it a 100% priority for you. If you are on LinkedIn, schedule an hour a week just to go through all your old contacts that maybe you haven't heard from, but I scroll through every week, like my boyfriend hunts. And so I always say I go hunting when he goes hunting, but I hunt for prospects. So I go to LinkedIn and I'll look at all my contacts and I'm like, oh, wow, she went there and I'll send her a note. But schedule it. Give yourself one hour a week to just reconnect with all your LinkedIn contacts. You'll find some prospects there. On the LinkedIn topic, one other thing I would recommend your investment committees, right? Make sure you connect with everyone on your investment committee, because that way when they move, so if you got four, and have as big an investment committee as possible, right? So A, it's good, it's good because you know people never make the meetings, so it's good for them. But then when you have those five people on the committee and two of them go off somewhere else, you've got an immediate connection with that other firm that they may be at. I did a little experiment recently with a client that I thought was really beneficial. This is a tool and die manufacturer, 120 employees outside of Atlanta. And they were in an area called Rockdale County, so it's a little bit outside of the city. And I had my team run the Larkspur data of all the plans that were directly around where this organization was, because I knew this woman, the CEO, was very involved with her local chamber of commerce. So I had it listed out one page of all the plans that were right there in Rockdale County. And my last committee meeting, I just dropped it in front of her. And she goes, what's that? What, what is that? And I said, these are all the plans that are around Rockdale County. And she was very curious to see the employer, how much money they had in their plan. And I said, you know, I, I wouldn't just flat out ask you to do this. But she's like, you want me to call these people? And I said, no, that's not where I was going. I said, but if there's anybody on this list that you know, I'd love to know that because I'd love to be able to mention your name that we do the work for your organization. She goes like, happy to. She's like, I know one, two, three, four, I know four of them. And it was just that simple. And I think in this business, even really good salespeople, I'm totally guilty of this. I do not ask my current customers for referrals often enough. And having that sheet that was in my my handout that I was doing that day made me do it because it was there. And she immediately started the conversation with me and it was totally non-invasive. And she thought it was interesting, frankly. 
And she said, tell you what, Dave, you put together an email with what you want to say, send it to me, and I'll send it from me to each of these four people to give you an introduction. And I thought, wow, that was easy. So that's just a, an idea that I just kind of had. But for the right customer, and particularly ones that are involved in their community or they're involved in the chamber or involved in better business or whatever it is, those people are happy to help. And if you show an interest in their community that you want to do more work there, they see that as you wanting to grow your business, but also to do good work for other people that are close by. So it's win-win. Thank you for listening to Better Conversations, Better Outcomes. This podcast is presented by BMO Global Asset Management. To access the resources discussed in today's show, please visit us at www.bemogam.com forward slash better conversations. We love feedback and would love to hear what you thought about today's episode. You can send an email to betterconversations at bemo.com. And we really respond. We do. If you thought of someone during today's episode, we would be flattered if you would take a moment and share this podcast with them. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And, of course, we would greatly appreciate it if you would take a moment to review us on that app. Our podcast and resources are supported by a very talented team of dedicated professionals at BMO, including Pat Bordak, Gail Gibson, Derek Devereaux. The show is edited and produced by Jonah Kyle Newfield and Sam Pierce Nitzberg of Puddle Creative. These are the real people that make this show happen. So thank you. And until next time, I'm Ben Jones. And I'm Emily Larson from all of us at BMO Global Asset Management, hoping you have a productive and wonderful week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Global Asset Management, its affiliates or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors are to consult with an investment, legal, and or tax professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results. BMO Global Asset Management is the brand name for various affiliated entities of BMO Financial Group that provide investment management and trust and custody services. BMO Financial Group is a service mark of Bank of Montreal. Further information can be found at www.bmogam.com.